all sorts of things. Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing with me, Renita Malhotra-Hora. Alexis Tsipras takes to the night shift as Greece talks resume in Brussels. U.S. stocks fall on the lack of a deal in Greece. And uh, China stock futures advance on a plan to ease bank lending limits. Well, Prime Minister Alexis Tsipras resumed talks with Greece's creditors late Wednesday as each side pushes for a breakthrough agreement on the terms of the bailout aid. We'll talk more about the impact on markets with Mandarin Capital's Nitin Dialdas. Then Inner Pages' Keith Lee, who is in the mobile app development industry, talks about banking business apps. And our last guest is Gartner's Adrian Liu. And he updates us on the risks and challenges of bringing your own device to work. Peter Lewis is guest host today. Good morning, Peter. Good morning, Renita. So, Peter, seems like everyone was so positive on Greece yesterday. Were you expecting a breakdown in discussions? Well, we've, we've seen so many last-minute deals and so many times where the can has been kicked down the road that I, I did think that maybe, particularly after Monday, they would come up with some sort of way of cobbling this together. But I've always believed that ultimately Greece and the Eurozone are going to divorce. That The problem is actually a political one now. It's not a financial one. It's not a technical one about discussions. There is a fundamental difference because we have a socialist government in Greece that wants to have a welfare state and it wants to pay for it by raising taxes and it doesn't want to cut that welfare state and it was elected on that basis. The creditors, particularly the IMF, want it the other way round. They want the welfare state cut they, um, and they don't want taxes to go up. And I have to say that makes sense. In a country that needs to grow its economy, the last thing you want to do is raise taxes right now. But it is a financial problem also, is it not, uh, Peter? I mean, we're getting uh, comments here on Periscope from uh, listeners and viewers around the world saying, well, Greece is going to go bankrupt. Is, is it going to go bankrupt? Greece is bankrupt anyway. And I think the only way in which this is going to re- be resolved is for the, the creditors to accept that at some point, and it's better to do it now rather than later, there's going to have to be a write down of this debt. There is no way that Greece can ever pay this money back, not in our lifetimes. So the sooner they accept that, the quicker we can move on. Well, with uh, fellow European leaders due to arrive for a two-day summit today, Alexis Cyprus met with the heads of the creditor institutions in Brussels for the second time after an earlier discussion lasting some five hours failed to bridge differences. Sticking points included pensions, sales taxes and debt relief. Hans Nichols of Bloomberg talks about Cyprus's reaction. Whether or not this is part of a negotiating strategy by Mr. Tsipras to wring better terms, better terms of a deal from his creditors, we don't know. We do know that he's telling his own people, and this is according to a government official, and they're putting this statement out, that it's strange that his proposal hasn't been accepted, that other similar proposals to Portugal, to Ireland, that they've all been accepted. And I think the most concerning part to me for how this impacts and influences the rest of these negotiations, he's kind of being, I don't want to say insulting. That may be too far, but he certainly isn't being conciliatory in his tone. He's questioning the other side's motives. And when you question the other side's motives, that makes it difficult to actually get to a negotiated solution, get to a final end deal. So I think it's pretty negative, especially if it happened this early. 
And here are more details from the BBC's Chris Morris in Brussels. Mr Tsipras had a pretty steely look on his face all day and the small glimpses we got of him uh, he suggested that uh, Greece was being treated unfairly that it was being asked to do things that previous countries that have been through bailout negotiations like Ireland and Portugal hadn't been asked to do because Greece felt that at the beginning of the week it had produced a different set of proposals with, with, with real numbers in it to make to meet the budget target its creditors had been demanding however the creditors essentially are saying there's too many tax rises, not enough spending cuts, uh, and they still really came to no deal. And because there was no deal between Mr Tsipras and the creditors, that's why the Eurozone finance minister, which followed it, was so short. I, I spoke after that meeting to the Finnish finance minister, Alex Stubb. He said it hadn't been a waste of time to meet yet again for the third time in a week with another finance minister's meeting due tomorrow. But I asked them if it had been wise once the Greeks submitted those new proposals at the beginning of the week to, in effect, throw them back in their face. Remember the process here. Uh, nothing has been given to us. It's a negotiation between the institutions and the Greek government. So in that sense, by definition, we have not been able to throw anything back at anyone because there's nothing on the table. But you're confident with the way the institutions are conducting these negotiations? I have full trust in the institutions. Otherwise, obviously, we would not outsource the negotiations uh, to the institutions. They are the ones who have probably the best best expertise to assess whether there is debt sustainability, whether the structural reforms are uh, enough, whether the taxation suggestions are correct, whether the pension scheme works, uh, and so on. So that's the situation that we are in. But they, they seem to be arguing amongst themselves. And away he walked. There was no answer to that last question, but there are differences of opinion between the creditors. The European Commission seemed much more upbeat about the prospects for a deal than the IMF on budget targets. On the other hand, the IMF is, is much more in Greece's corner when it comes to the thorny issue of debt sustainability and the, and, and the, and the debt restructuring that Greeks, Greece wants to achieve. Greek banks have been given emergency funding for a third day running. This is as savers in the country withdraw their funds. Greek stocks and bonds fell Wednesday amid continued disagreement over the conditions attached to a resumption of aid for the indebted nation. And U.S. stocks also closed lower. The Dow Jones fell 178 points to 17,966. The S&P 500 lost 15 points or 0.74 percent to 2,108, and the NASDAQ dropped 37 points, or 0.73%, to 5,122. Well, China is to scrap the long-standing loan-to-debt ratio requirement for commercial banks. It's the latest in a series of measures to reform the sector and promote more lending into a slowing, slowing economy. Alex Price has the details. The State Council published its decision late yesterday as part of a draft amendment to the country's 20-year-old commercial banking law. The mainland's banks are at present prohibited from lending more than 75% of their deposits, limiting their ability to offer loans and engage in other commercial activity. It's been estimated that scrapping the ratio would potentially allow 16 listed banks to release up to 6.6 trillion yuan in extra lending. However, it's unclear exactly how much effect it would have, as the current economic climate is making banks somewhat risk-averse. Economic growth is continuing to slow, and the government has been hastening financial reforms that include liberalising interest rates and implementing a deposit insurance scheme. 
The central bank has also cut interest rates three times in the past seven months, in a bid to lower borrowing costs, while giving banks more flexibility over how much they pay depositors, which has hit bank earnings as lenders face competitive pressure to pay more for deposits. Yesterday's draft amendment will be submitted for formal approval to the Standing Committee of the National People's Congress. And in company news, Alibaba has launched its online lender, MyBank. Bloomberg's Emily Chang reports. Jack Ma is expanding the Alibaba empire. The Chinese e-commerce giant will launch MyBank, an online lender that will be part of the company's finance arm. This addition is part of a trend of private banks being licensed by the government to target small loans, including... WeBank, which was launched by Alibaba's competitor Tencent back in December. But not everyone is thrilled by the growth. Chinese banks like Industrial and Commercial Bank of China, Construction, China Construction Bank, and Agricultural Bank of China are setting up e-commerce platforms as a defense to Alibaba's expansion. My bank will begin operating tomorrow. All right, let's bring in our first guest for this morning, Mandarin Capital's Chief Investment Officer, Nitin Dialdas. Good morning, Nitin. Morning. Nitin, what do you make of China's decision to scrap the loan-to-deposit ratio for commercial banks? Um, If you looked at the PMI number a few days ago, you actually saw domestic demand is actually starting to pick up. So that side of it, I don't necessarily think needs too much more stimulus. The area that's of concern is on the labor side. And you're seeing a lot of jobs getting uh, be, get, um, being lost. So if you can get some commercial lending and people can, you know, take a little bit more off from the bank, hopefully that can go back into the system and that will help on the Labor Department. I think that's a very key part for China to um, really uh, continue the stability and then start seeing growth come back. Nathan, some analysts were saying when we saw the correction in Chinese stocks last week that the government would take measures probably uh, to promote credit in the economy. Do you think uh, this is related to last week's correction? I think it's, it is related for sure. Um, as we know, China have been trying to create wealth through various measures. Initially, it started in the property market. And now we've seen the stock market I mean, go blazing, uh, just blazed upwards this year. Um, it needed to cool down. I mean, I think the stock market coming down 10% on, off a 130% rise is really not, it's not a tremendous correction. Um, but at the same time, I think they don't want this to, you know, escalate and therefore whatever wealth was created as stock market gets lost very quickly. So they needed something to stabilise that side, yes. So Nitin, one of the problems has been that banks have largely lend to state-owned enterprises and what really needs to happen is we need to encourage them to lend to smaller companies which are in desperate need of capital and, and funding. Do you think changing this loan-to-deposit ratio will help in that process? I think so. I think if there's more money that they can loan, there's obviously a wider range of companies that they can loan to. So I think more interesting on that was the Alibaba Bank uh, being created because that will lend to the smaller uh, companies. And then you're going to see the competition come in from the ICBCs, the CCBs, the agriculture banks who don't want to lose that part of the pie. So I do think there will be um, lending coming through into small companies. For sure. how, how do you think uh, you know, the larger banks will respond to something like Alibaba's MyPay? Um, they're small loans, and I think they will respond by trying to increase their s- small company lending. But it won't be to a level, obviously, that they're going to lend to state, you know, to the SOEs or any any of those types of companies. And they'll see it as a as a it's a riskier play. But for the amount of money that they're going to lend, it's probably worth it. 
So Alibaba could really become a threat to some of the banks in um, in China, given the amount of funds that Alibaba has in effect on deposits. It's like a bank already. Do you see that as um, as, as transpiring? Yes. <laughs> I mean, short answer is yes. I mean, I think if you look at Alibaba and you look at Jack Ma's model, it has been to really try and get each part of the, say, the domestic economy and you know, st- as well as the commercial economy. So obviously, initially B two B business. And he's grown from there. And now he's going to go to smaller lending and really help on the commercial side. So I do think his plan has always been to start becoming a bit of a threat to the banks. Uh, But it'll be good for China. Competition is always good. Uh, Nitin, you know, in looking at Chinese stocks and trying to assess the health of the Chinese stock market, there's a lot of opinion out on this. You know, some people think that, you know, the rally is pushing towards a bubble, despite the corrections that we've seen recently. Uh, Others say, no, well, what you actually have to look at is the number of IPOs coming to market. Now, the CSRC uh, has given approval for uh, 28 companies to IPO. Does this actually show health? in the Chinese stock market? I think when you get a lot of IPAs, you start seeing the top of the market. I mean, if you look historically at the likes of any market globally, when you get a lot of a series of IPAs coming out, you can be sure we're getting towards the top. If you look at the P's, take out the financials, China's looking very much in bubble territory, especially on the tech side of it. I personally will be a bit cautious on the stock market going forward from here. I think the run has happened. Uh, maybe another 10 15% correction, probably stabilise around those levels. Um, I don't really see another round of a massive rally where we you know, go to completely new highs, not in the short term anyway. So, Nitin, where are you finding value? Um, for us, I think the markets generally, we're, at, we're entering these periods where it's a bit of a doldrum. And I think if you look generally at the charts globally, they are starting to look a little bit toppy. Um, we've, we're, we're, one of the markets that we are attracted to is Vietnam. And we think, obviously, there's a lot of China plus one play going on from the global market. And um, they're starting to look away from China into a place like Vietnam. Vietnam's capturing a lot of the electronic side. You're also seeing some of the manufacturing uh, factories moving more and more of their stuff over there. So that's one area that we are quite attracted to. But in terms of, like, the developed market, stock markets, I think we're probably going to go through a bit of a correction or consolidation phase over the next few months. All right, Nitin, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Uh, that's Nitin Dialdas, and he is the Chief Investment Officer at Mandarin Capital. Thank you. Banking apps claim to make your life easier, but which ones are most necessary? Our next guest, Keith Lee, is a part-time lecturer at Hong Kong's Baptist University. He uh, lectures about mobile communication, and he's also the CEO of the mobile apps development uh, the company, InnoPage. Good morning, Keith. Morning. Keith, can you tell us a little bit more about the difference uh, between banking apps and consumer apps like the one I have on my phone from HSBC? Right. Uh, the banking apps are uh, trying to uh, move from the really, uh, web-based service uh, to the mobile services. So uh, basically the, the apps are... Uh, Actually, ha- trying to help uh, people to uh, uh, work on their uh, finance and uh, all these banking-related services uh, uh, on the mobile phone. So, Keith, ca- everything that you can do on your web-based um, banking application is the idea that you should be able to do the same and maybe even more on your smartphone. Uh, yes, definitely. 
say if you want to uh, uh, trade stocks, you you very uh, uh, have to uh, uh, do very timely decisions. So uh, you you can't go back to your uh, desktop PCs uh, or you are you are on on the MTR or something. Uh, then it's very uh, convenient. You use an app and then do the trading uh, any place anywhere. But I still find it quite difficult here in Hong Kong to be truly electronic because as soon as you want to do something new, whether it's on your smartphone, whether it's on a, a web-based application, you have to go into your branch. As soon as you want to do something above a certain pre-authorized amount, you have to go into the branch. And I'm constantly finding you have to keep on signing forms in triplicate, despite the fact that it's supposed to be electronic and you're supposed to be able to do this without ever having to visit your branch. Is is that a problem for you? Uh, yeah. Uh well, this is uh, the is a is a is a balance between uh, 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 the uh, security and the convenience. So, uh, if we uh, if the government really uh, uh, you know loosen the the regulations uh, so that everybody can can uh, do uh, all all these uh, trading on the on the mobile phones, then there will be a a security risk. So uh, it's really a decision uh, how to balance the convenience and the security. So, Keith, I mean, that is, that is, I think, the crux of the matter here is the security. How do you reconcile the two? Uh, how do you make the decision to actually use a banking app if security is such a huge issue? Well, it's banking apps is just like any other uh, banking system, whether it's on PC or on web. Um, so when we develop apps for banks, we have to go through all the same uh, uh, security features, uh, all these uh, auditing, uh, all these uh, uh, security uh, uh, procedures, practice. We will have to implement the same level of security uh, as other uh, uh, platforms like the web or the PC uh, uh, desktop applications. All right, Keith, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Keith is the CEO of InnerPage. Time to take a quick look at the numbers now. The Nikkei is down three-tenths of a percent to 20,797. Australia's ASX 200 index down 0.07% to 5,668. And Seoul's Kospi down half a percent this morning to 2,075. In currencies, one euro is currently valued at 1.12. U.S. dollars. The U.S. dollar is trading at 123.9 yen and one pound sterling buys you 12 Hong Kong dollars and 17 cents and one U.S. dollar and 57 cents. Well, mobile workforce. I mean, this is certainly a hot topic. Bringing your own laptop or tablet or smartphone to work is a no-brainer. But um, what is exactly meant by bring your own device? We're now joined by Gartner's principal research analyst, Adrian Liao, to learn more. Good morning, Adrian. Good morning, Renita. So uh, bring your own device. I mean, it's here, it's in Hong Kong. Can you tell us exactly what it is? Well, BYOD is predominantly a smartphone and tablet phenomena. Um, It's bringing your own smartphones, your own mobile devices into the workplace to access data that you would be doing to do 
your corporate work. Um, it's not really at the moment penetrating PCs. So when we look at these different stats, right now CIOs are saying that 19% of them are doing a, some sort of BYD program. But when we ask consumers the, the, the same question, they actually 55% of them say they're doing it. So this just means the CIOs don't necessarily know how many devices are actually accessing their network. So when you're actually trying to access all the different files, your systems, everything inside your corporate network, that's going to open you up to a lot of various security issues that you need to think about. So when you're trying to uh, use a smartphone uh, inside a network, security needs to lock it down. And usually that's going to be with what we call an enterprise mobility management client. Um, I won't get too technical. We just call it EMM. And this is how they're actually locking down these devices. So you can do everything that you need inside your own device on your corporate network. But with you know such a huge discrepancy between the two, the consumers uh, using this and um, you know companies actually allowing it, as you say, mm. how do you actually get there? Yeah, so as I mentioned, you use these EMM clients, which actually get deployed onto uh, personal devices. So they can actually lock down uh, things you can access, different uh, uh, websites, different even things to even stopping you accessing an app store, which is actually something that we wouldn't necessarily recommend because one of the key recommendations that we say is that don't make your policies too restrictive. And the reason is is because the more restrictive you make it, people will subvert what you're trying to do, and it essentially makes your security policy redundant. In, in many firms in the financial services sector in particular, you're not allowed to take personal devices into the office. You're not allowed to run office applications on your own devices for security and regulatory um, sort of reasons as well. So how do you combine the two in that type of situation where, yep. you know, you do want to have your own personal apps, but you can't take them to, can't take them to work? Okay. Very good question. So there's a few different ways you can do this. One way that we recommend is called managed diversity, where you've got three different categories. You're going to have what we call choose your own device, CYOD, which are the cheap, ugly devices that the corporates will actually give you, probably from about a selection of 10. And then you're going to have semi-managed devices, which are the BYOD. So that's the ones you bring in personally. And then you've got the exceptions, the executives, who are going to bring in whatever they want. Across these different um, realms of devices which are coming in, you're going to have different policies going across these three different categories here. And the point is, is that you can't just assume you're going to have all BYOD or all CYOD or all exceptions. You're going to have a mix of them to try and manage the different devices that you have inside your network. But so, so how does that actually help? It sounds like you still have to have three devices. Uh, it's not you having three devices. It's actually the IT department having to manage three different categories. So you're going to have, as I said, uh, one category for choose your own device, one for BYOD, and one for the executives. Because it's what we call you need to take a posture with security. There's no one size fits all. You need to have low, medium, high risk. And so you're going to apply different policies to different roles and categories. That because a lot of different organizations get mixed up. They think that they can do one size fits all to everyone because they think malware uh, detection, virus scanners, all that traditional stuff, that does not apply to mobile. iOS doesn't have virus scanners. They don't make them. They don't need them. Android, maybe, Windows Phone, jury's out on that. So they need to take that posture low, medium, high and apply the right 
policies on those different roles. I see. So, okay, so we've got different kinds of devices going to different kinds of employees depending upon the role. But how foolproof is this? I mean, surely they can still be hacked into. Um, well, nothing is 100% foolproof. These are all measures that you need to take at least to mitigate the risk of actually having some kind of penetration coming through. So this is why we do encourage that you do roll out an EMM client, whether it's an AirWatch, MobileEye, and there's lots of vendors out there that can do it because it can actually separate your workspace. So you can have corporate workspace, you can have personal workspace. And with these different clients, you can actually, as IT, remotely wipe out a device if it's stolen. But it will only wipe out that corporate section, so you won't lose all your personal apps and data. But one thing I just want to make a point there is there are court cases that have been going on in the U.S., that actually employees are suing their employer because their devices have been wiped out, like just the corporate part, but it did wipe out key parts of their own personal data that they needed. Some, like one particular person was involved in a divorce um, lawsuit and he lost uh, important messages in there, emails that related to the lawsuit that he had. And that opens up a whole Pandora's box of issues. I mean, the employee obviously chose to go that way rather than uh, keeping things separate in the first place. That's correct. Yeah. Peter, what do you think? Well, I, I still wonder how you can have a device whereby you can have your company put on all their applications and then you can take that away, take it outside to home, upload all your own applications as well, because quite often what you find is they conflict. You upload something and it ends up corrupting you know, something that's already on the phone and maybe damaging one of the company applications. You always end up with this sort of conflict between your business uh, sort of needs and your personal needs. Yeah, I'll, I'll disagree on that point just for the fact of, and I won't get too technical here, but the architecture of apps is what we call a sandbox. If you imagine a sandbox, it just sits there by itself. Yep. So what happens is that the actual app itself is contained all in its own little sandbox and it can't infect another app. This is different to PCs. PCs have a different file system architecture that will actually, you put one thing in there, it's a matrix that will infect everything. So it is, it's, it is inherently more secure on a mobile device. It's more about the usability of about using your own personal stuff versus using your corporate and having it locked down. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, very interesting stuff. Unfortunately, we are now out of time. That is uh, Adrian Liao, and he is a principal research analyst at Gartner. Thank you for joining us on Money for Nothing, Adrian. Well, here we are almost at the end of the show. So let's take a quick look at the numbers. The Nikkei is down three-tenths of a percent to 20,797. Australia's ASX 200 index also down 0.07% to 5,668. And Sol's Kospi down half a percent to 2,075. Gold currently stands at $1,172.60 per ounce and Brent crude oil at $63.49. Peter, here we are. It's the end of a Thursday. We have Greece, which is just looming. No resolution so far. What else should we be keeping our eyes on? 
Well, I, I was actually quite interested about this story that uh, came out a couple of days ago, whereby um, Saudi Arabia is now no longer the main oil exporter to China. It's been overtaken by Russia. And I'm wondering what that means in the longer term, ultimately for the petrodollar and whether we're going to see, you know, oil start to be, um, well, it's certainly going to be paid for in the, the Chinese currency, but whether we're moving away from eventually the dollar becoming the world's dominant currency. Well, maybe oil will be uh, back on the agenda tomorrow or next week. All right, Peter, thank you so much for joining us uh, this morning on Money for Nothing and every Thursday morning as guest host. That's Peter Lewis of Peter Lewis Consulting. And I'm Renita Malhotrahora, wrapping up for this morning's edition of Money for Nothing. A quick look at the weather forecast for today. It'll be mainly cloudy with scattered showers and isolated squally thunderstorms. The temperature right now is 29 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity Humidity is 89%. And here's Samantha Butler with the news. President Obama has raised ongoing U.S. concerns over China's cyber activities with a visiting high-ranking delegation from Beijing. As Alex Price reports, China agreed to work with the U.S. on a code of conduct on the issue. President Obama closed off two days of talks with top Chinese officials at the White House, raising concerns about China's cyber and maritime behaviour, as well as its currency, technology and investment policies. A White House statement said during talks with officials, including Vice Premiers Liu Yangdong and Wang Yang, Mr Obama urged China to take concrete steps to lower tensions. During talks with US Secretary of State John Kerry, State Councillor Yang Jiechi said China was cracking down on hacking and was ready to cooperate on cybersecurity.